Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the section of Daniel. This, uh, th- this book is a mighty book uh, concerning this man, Daniel, who you did great things through. I thank you for his uh, life, his example, his integrity, his remaining faithful to you uh, through exceptionally difficult times that we, uh, we can't even fathom. And Lord, as we finish up Daniel chapter 9, the section that contains the, the, the backbone of biblical prophecy, of, as some say, uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Lord, help me in my sharing. Help us in our uh, learning from your word. We ask, Father, that you would help us uh, to understand the things that are written here, that we would uh, grow closer to you through this this time of, of worshiping you through the studying of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, grow our confidence in, in the work that you did through Christ and providing salvation for us. We thank you that you're not completed in the work that you're doing uh, here on earth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to glean from this passage uh, important principles that we can apply to our life. Uh, again, help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And Father, we do turn to you. We ask you that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, this is a fun passage, really simple stuff before us. Hope you brought your thinking caps and are all recovered from the new year and are are ready to go. Um, For those of you that remembered, we we covered part of this already. Um, This is a section that's known as Daniel's 70 Weeks. Um. In the prayer, I said that there are many theologians who refer to this, uh, this section as, as the, the backbone of biblical prophecy. And so two weeks ago, if you weren't here, I would advise you to go back and listen to that message to kind of catch up. Um, but we sort of covered the part with the eye of the first coming of Christ since we were in the season of Christmas and there's many prophecies concerning, concerning his coming. And this prophecy in itself, um, there are great theologians that say, you can take what is said here, and if you do the math, you could have calculated that on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that the completion of the 69th week was full, fulfilled just as it's written here. Now, when I was in the Navy and I was an instructor, and one of the, I didn't like doing the push-ups, pull-ups, that sort of thing, so I never led those. Um, but I was a runner and a swimmer, so I took all of those. So the guys that like doing the bodybuilding stuff, they hate running and swimming. And so I said, you do all that stuff, I'll do all the running and swimming. And on a, on a run, inevitably what would happen is the class would get really spread out, and so you would basically loop back around and kind of gather up the stragglers, and then you would continue on. This week, we're sort of doing that. We're kind of looping back two weeks, and we're going to look at the text again. Some of the stuff we already covered, um, but but our focus today is to be looking future 
the things that haven't been uh, fulfilled yet in this passage. So to remind ourselves of where we've been, if we were to go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, we would see that a, um, a, Daniel gives a time stamp that, uh, that happened, that, that he helps us tie into history where he was when all of this happened. And we read in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherias, the of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. So if you do the math, you can figure out historically that this happened 66 years after Israel was taken into captivity. So Daniel, who started his life as a young man in captivity, has grown up under the ranks under now a couple different uh, uh, kings and, and uh, world powers. And we're told in the following verses that he was he was seeking God. He was, he was reading the scripture. He had a copy somehow of, of Jeremiah that was a, a contemporary prophet of his, of his day, um, warning of the things that would come to Israel. And as he's going through Jeremiah, he realized that Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be taken into captivity for 70 years. And Daniel scratching his head going, wait a minute, 70 years. It's been 66 years. And it wasn't really like the 66 years we can look back in hindsight and say, okay, it's exactly 66 years. For, For Daniel, it wouldn't have been as clear because Israel was taken into captivity in three waves. The first wave started in 605 B.C. when Daniel was taken captive. The last one was 586 B.C., um, when the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. And so the ticker, historically, it seems, began during the first wave of, of people that were taken into captivity. And so Daniel, when he sees this, he falls on his face and he pray, prays. I, I believe Daniel 9 is the longest prayer recorded in all of Scripture. And we see this godly man falling on his face, praying and reaching out to God, confessing sin for himself, for his nation, for his people, pleading with God um, that he would restore Jerusalem and the temple, not for Daniel's sake, not for Israel's sake, but solely for the sake of God's glory. And as he's praying, all of a sudden the angel Gabriel shows up and says, hey, Gabriel, as soon as, or, hey Daniel, as soon as you started praying, I was dispatched by God to come here to give you a message. And so we sort of enter in today as as the angel Gabriel begins to give this prophecy to Daniel that he's to have. Uh, Verse 24, to remind us, is sort of the summary verse, sort of explaining all um, of the prophecy that was to be given. And so we learn there that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Or you can make a strong case that this word place is the holy one, meaning the Messiah. Um. Where to review this. I don't know that I want you to pull out your calculators again. That was one giggle. Thank you for that. Reading 70 weeks can be very confusing for us because we don't tally time as they did, or we we don't use this word as they did. It literally says 77s. Um... This word sevens or weeks could be understood as we talk about a dozen. A dozen can be 12 of anything. You just have to have the context of what the dozen is referring to. If you're standing at the corner of of Ninth and Escondido and you use the word dozen, I'm going to have a strong inclination that you're talking about donuts because Peterson's is right there. Now, if you're at Home Depot in front of the bolts and you talk about a dozen, I'm going to think that you're talking about a bolt 
or whatever you're standing in front of. We use the word decade or deca, you know, to talk about 10. So when we say decade, we, we think in terms of 10 years, right? Now, this word sevens or the word that's translated weeks, it really depends on the context to establish what's being talked about because it could mean days, it could mean weeks, it could mean months, or it could mean years. So if we go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, we get the context of how this word is to be used. And so in verse 2 we read, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years. So the whole context has been set that what Daniel is referencing is years. Now the years that he discovers in verse 2 was the prophecy concerning Israel about the 70 years of captivity that they would go under the Babylonian uh, culture. Gabriel's going to show up and he's going to give this new prophecy concerning the 70 weeks. So the context is years, so weeks of years. So 70 weeks equals 490 years. Hopefully you guys followed, trying to be as clear and concise as possible. So we read that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. This is also very important because it gives us the context of who this is addressing. So this prophecy concerns the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and specifically the city of Jerusalem and the temple. This isn't given to the the church, to the Christian, and and it can get very confusing if we start inserting the church where the Bible is speaking about the the Jewish people. The the Jews are very distinct here. So he says, "This, this, this has been decreed for your people and your city. Six things are given. You'll see that number one, to finish transgression... Number two, to make an end of sin. And number three, to make an atonement for iniquity. So I'm going to kind of pause there. The, the, the first three deal with sin. Some of this has been dealt with. Some of this has not been dealt with yet. But it's all dealt with in the person of Christ. So certainly the third point, on the cross, when Jesus died, he made atonement for iniquity. The, 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 the world's sin was placed upon him. But at the cross, he hasn't ended sin altogether. Sin is still thriving. And so we're told at the end of these 70 weeks, sin's going to totally be done away with. There's... Transgression will be finished, there'll be an end of sin, and he'll make atonement for iniquity. Then number four, he'll bring about everlasting righteousness. So we see this everlasting righteousness has been partly fulfilled in Christ. That there'll be a time when we're no, we no longer have to deal with the sin and that, that the full righteousness that we have received in Christ, the theological term for uh, having it imputed to us, credited to our account. So we have righteousness credited to our account, but we have a whole lot of unrighteousness in our flesh. A day is coming when unrighteousness will be done away totally and completely and righteousness will be everlasting. So this is partially fulfilled. And then we see seal up vision and prophecy that, that could be completed and then to anoint the most holy place or the holy one that seems to be yet future. And so in verse 24, it's a summary statement of these things that will happen by the end of this, uh, this specific allotted point of time laid out within 70 weeks. Now when we get into verse 25, he begins to take that 70 weeks and to sort of uh, budget it in a sense. So he's going to budget it by seven 
blocks of weeks or 49 years, and then there's going to be another 62 weeks that are going to be budgeted, and then there's a last week that's going to be budgeted for things to occur. So the first one that we see here in verse 25. So Gabriel tells Daniel, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And so what we need to do is uh, to sort of, uh, it's probably not geometry, but Dave has geometry in my mind here. But, but we have to sort of pair these two together. And so when you see rebuild Jerusalem, that gets plugged in, that gets connected to the seven weeks that follows it. And then you see Messiah the Prince, that ties in to the 62 weeks that are mentioned. And so what we're told here, or or that Daniel is told, is as you live your life, a decree will go out that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And from that point, you can start the clock on the 70 weeks or the 49 years. So start the stopwatch. And so we have the benefit of looking back and figuring out, well, when did this clock start? Almost everyone points to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And there the prophet Nehemiah is looking discouraged. He's looking downcast. He's still in captivity. The king of that empire looks and says, what's, what's your problem, Nehemiah? What's going on? He's like, how can I be happy when my beautiful city's been destroyed? And then that king says, okay, I'm going to write a decree. And you can go back and you can build your city, rebuild the temple, rebuild all of that. And that's where we see the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple. And so the clock there, we're we're told, the prince there will be, uh, let me go back, verse 25. So you will know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks. And so we're told within 49 years of that decree, Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. It was. Then we deal with the 62 weeks, which is another 434 years. So you get to the end of the 49 years, and you can do a lap on your stopwatch. If you guys exercise, you know what I'm talking about. Lap means you don't start from the beginning. You just start a new lap. So from that lap mark, another 434 years, or 62 weeks. If you were to start fresh from the beginning of when this decree went out, it would be, I got to look at this because the math is, it would be 483 years from the start. So you have seven weeks, then you have 62 weeks. So we're told that basically at 69 weeks from this decree, the Messiah is going to roll into Jerusalem. That's what's said. If you do the math, and I didn't, I didn't get all into this, but there are, there are, there are reputable theologians. There are obviously, there are obviously re- reputable theologians that totally disagree with all of this. <clears throat> but from the position that I teach from, there are very credible witnesses that say we know when that decree was made. It was made in the month of Nisan, which is, I think it's March or April. Don't, I'm not one of those credible theologians. <laughs> I did a lot of effort in it. But it's like when Easter happens, they say there's a date. And if you calculate all of this out, they make the claim that they know the precise date that Jesus walked in to Jerusalem. He said, hey, go get that donkey, and I'm going to ride the donkey in. It was Lamb Selection Day. And I, I believe that that completed the 69th week. It totally makes sense when you look at Jesus' life, his ministry, and they kept saying, we want to we say what's going on. And he says, the time hasn't, or he says, the hour hasn't come yet. Then all of a sudden, as he rolls into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he says, now is my time. Literally speaking, that his time, the time for the Messiah to arrive had come. We see that as he does this, 
The crowds are waving their palm, palm branches, which is the equivalent of waving the American flag. They were ready for the Messiah to come. They were ready uh, to establish their kingdom. But they had missed some things. So now we get back to the text. So we have this in verse 25, we have the seven weeks, the 62 weeks, that brings us to 69. That leaves one week. We read verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, something's going to happen. Or a number of events are going to happen. This is where I need my brain to catch up to figure out how much I want to share. Okay, so a lot of things have been promised in verse 25, those six things. Up to this point, we see that the Messiah will arrive by the end of the 69th week. Then we're told in verse 26, there's this natural break between the 69th and 70th week. We read, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that the Messiah is going to roll in on the 62nd week. And after that, he's going to be cut off. I'm not sure that they caught this. I'm not sure that they caught Isaiah 53, the Jewish people, and the prophecies that would come about their Messiah. They saw, and I'm not being condescending because we all would have done the same thing, when they saw the prophecy of the Messiah, they saw the first and the second coming as one event. And so to separate the two was hard to see. And so here we see, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is the Antichrist, this isn't the Messiah, will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war, desolations are determined and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Okay. I have some transitional thoughts in my notes that I feel like would be good to share at this point. <clears throat> so typically, I just fly over these verses. Like, like generally speaking, like, like for a lot of Daniel, for a lot of Revelation, we're like big picture. This is one of those sections where we need to take two weeks and kind of zero in to look at some things because this is so critical, because our belief in who Christ is isn't just some sort of, oh, I just take, I take it by faith. The Bible says it, I believe it, it's good to go. That, that, that's awesome. If you're okay, like if you're okay with that, I'm, I, it's great. I have more of a skeptic's mind coming to the faith. And so when we narrow down on this and we look at the prophecy that was foretold and you start peeling away the layers, what it does is it really authenticate the claims of Christ. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And so there seems to be this natural break between verses 26 or 25 and 26. So between the 69th and 70th week, the text, the prophecy itself, Seems, seems for us looking in hindsight, there seems to be a natural break there. Um, it seems like between verses 25 and 26, the prophetical time clock is paused and it will be restarted a little bit later. Um, <clears throat> puzzles. Who here loves puzzles? I didn't raise my hand. I mean, I'm not, I'm just, I don't love them. <laughs> but I saw a couple. I know my wife loves puzzles. Like we go on vacation, there's normally like, she's going to get a box of a puzzle. When we were Thanksgiving, we were down at the beach and they started, they got a puzzle to start working through during the week. What I love about puzzles is when they start, I kind of go up to the box and I kind of swipe a couple pieces, put those, <laughs> put those pieces in my pocket somewhere up safe. And I can see them, you know, they work on the edges. They get sort of like, they kind of figure out what, they kind of have the pieces and they can sort of see what the image is. And then towards the end, they can start, wait, the pieces aren't, no, we're short. 
that they want to complete. So they have this incomplete puzzle. And this is when I like to swoop in and go, boom, boom, boom. There's nothing more gratifying than finishing off the puzzle, is there? <clears throat> it gets me in so much trouble, but it doesn't stop me because I, 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 I love it. <clears throat> what we have here is kind of a puzzle. So, so this is not the Bible, right? This, this graph that I've given you to sort of aid your understanding and the things that are presented by the scripture as a whole is like a puzzle. And we have a whole lot of missing pieces. But so when we look at this, we go, okay, in Daniel chapter 2, this great vision of Nebuchadnezzar, he had this vision of the statue. And we're then told that these are the various kingdoms. And so we can piece together various things. And we can say, okay, there's 70 years that Israel was to be taken captive. And there's some verses down there. Then in 44 BC, we know that there was a decree to write, uh, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. And so we kind of, they plugged in, they've plugged in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We start the theological clock for 483 years, which is at the bottom, or 69 weeks. And then right before the cross, Jesus rides into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. And we go, okay, that fits with this prophecy. Now we have some, we have, we have some gaps that we don't know how to, how to deal with them. And so then we kind of go over and we see, okay, Revelation, we can plug in some Revelation chapter 20, we can plug in Ezekiel 37, we can, all of these verses, if you, if you have a bulletin, you have one of these things, you can see all the stuff. So we start plugging in all the stuff for the millennial kingdom. And so we kind of have this partially figured out puzzle that we hold very open-handed, but it helps us to kind of understand what's being said and what's been fulfilled and what hasn't been fulfilled. Um, my understanding from the position that I teach with, the next piece of the puzzle that I think that history will be given is the church will be taken from the earth and we'll meet Christ in the sky as, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and 18 references. And I believe at that point, then the 70th week will start. But with that, let's just let's kind of get into verse 26. Um, so verse 26, then after, then after what? Then after the 69th week, the 70th week will begin. <clears throat> then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off Jesus was crucified. It fits the prophecy. The Palm Sunday he rode in, he was executed that Thursday or Friday or Wednesday. There's, some, there's a lot of different views on that. But before Easter, he was crucified. <clears throat> and the people of the prince, so the Antichrist, the people who follow the Antichrist, who is to come, so future from this point, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end, there will be war, desolations are to be determined. So there's a lot to... Okay, then after. This whole church age that we live under was a mystery. If we were to go to Ephesians, we'll go to Ephesians. Hold your place in Daniel. Ephesians 3, verse 9. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes this, and I want to point out that the Apostle Paul, like the, the, the rest of the apostles are like uneducated fishermen that really didn't make it through like rabbinical training. Like they all washed out of the system and they were blue-collar guys that just loved God but weren't really trained. Paul is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. This guy has the pedigree from before birth. He had the mind and the resources of, as a family to study under like the most Ivy League of Ivy League schools, but they had rabbis. So, so I don't know what the most elite is. Probably depends on where you graduated from that you tend to think, but it's like this guy was like from MIT or something in theological circles. He had the whole of the Old Testament memorized. He had 
authority within Jewish circles. He was, he was basically on the trajectory to basically be a Supreme Court judge, like the leading Supreme Court judge within their Sanhedrin. Then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. His whole world is flipped upside down. He tells us that after that moment, he went out to the desert for like 14 years to reevaluate everything that he knew from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah after encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. And so I'm, I'm certain that he would have been looking at Daniel chapter 9. But he tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, let's start at verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints is exactly opposite of what I just told you. But Paul had a humble attitude about himself, but he, like, we cannot mess with, like, the pedigree of Paul. Like people say, oh, if Paul can get saved, Paul wasn't some pagan, like, you know, running Garnett like me, getting all sorts of like debauchery. Like his sin was that he was religious. His sin was that he thought he was sinless before meeting Christ. He thought that he was blameless before the law of God. I don't know anybody that would, with a straight face, say, no, as far as the law is concerned, I'm blameless. Paul could do that, and he meant it, and he actually fulfilled what they thought the law required. But after meeting Christ, everything changes. And he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration or dispensation, it might say in your translation, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So the reason that I bring this up, you can go back to Daniel, is that the idea of this church, this period that we live, it wasn't really seen in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the church is born. There's a lot we can talk about that, but I'm going to kind of, you can study that on your own. But Paul the Apostle tells us that this age that we live in, this, this period or dispensation of grace, was unforeseen in the Old Testament. It's a mystery that's now been uncovered, and he is proclaiming it. And there could be no better guy than the Apostle Paul who was the Jew of Jews. He was like the rock star of all of the Jewish people. No better Jew than to bring the Gentiles into the fold of the Jewish plan of salvation. I need to keep reminding ourselves that the 70 weeks have to do with God's plan with the the people of Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. God is not done with Israel. We get into really dangerous places when we start saying, well, this hasn't happened, so we're just going to insert the church and assume all of the promises and blessings that have been given to Israel. There's a danger there. It's not responsible, like scripturally. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is pleading this case. You know, the great verse that we all know and love, Romans 8, 28, for all things, what, you know, I'm terrible at Bible memory. Uh, for all things are good for those who love, you know. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, got too many files over my brain. But like right after that, Paul knows up to that point, he's writing and he's a Jew, what about all the promises that were given to Israel? If, if I'm saying this, does this mean that God has broken his vow with Israel and it launches into what is not a parenthesis of Romans? What I think it's the main subject of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. He begins to say all that God is about to do through Israel and that his promises are not broken with Israel. And you get to the end of chapter 11 at verse 25 And it says, let's just go there because I don't want to butcher it like I just did on the other one. So Romans chapter 11, this huge discourse about Israel. And how does Israel and the church coexist? Like, how do we handle all of these promises? And in verse 25, Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God is doing something now. 
And it's believed that one point a Gentile will get saved that will be the fullness of the Gentiles, that the last period for the Gentiles to be saved it will happen. And I, I sort of think this is just Gunnar thinking. I think at that moment the rapture happens. And then we kick into the 70th week, and then God resumes his plan of his promises with the nation of Israel. And so he makes his whole case, and he gets to 12 1, and he, he picks up, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is what Dave mentioned earlier. But the whole point of 9 through 11 is just to show the Jews that God hasn't breached his promise to them, and he's going to continue. Mm-hmm. We're told the Messiah will be cut off. Back to Daniel. 69th week, concluded at Palm Sunday. Then he was executed on the cross. Then we deal with this, the, the second half of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this will end. All this will come with a flood. Even to the end of the age, there will be war. Desolations are determined. When we look at this, like, what's he talking about? From, from Daniel's perspective looking out, they would have seen the Maccabean revolt or the things that led to the Maccabean revolt. When the what's-his-name went in there, some Greek, you know, went into the temple after destroying it and took a pig, slaughtered the pig on the temple to desecrate it which had ultimately led to the revolt, which is why we, the, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, to, 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 to celebrate the recommissioning of the temple. From Jesus' perspective, you could look forward and you could look at A.D. 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. But it seems that what's being talked about is yet future, is yet to happen And I'm going to get there. Verse 27. So, and he will make a firm covenant with many. So we believe that this is the Antichrist referring back to the prince who is to come in verse 26. It's the closest, I think the the technical grammatical term is the antecedent that you tie it to is is that Antichrist that's referenced. So he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of this week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering and the wing of abominations will come over one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay. So kicking off the 70th week, the Antichrist will show up and this covenant will be signed. So four things happen within this verse from the Antichrist. Number one, is he's going to impose a covenant with Israel for one week, which is seven years. So we're still in the block of time. So there's going to be this covenant that's made between the nation of Israel, um, and he's going to break this covenant halfway through. So at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to break this covenant. He's going to force the Jews, number three, to stop the sacrificial and grain offerings, which also seems to indicate that the temple's going to be restored. Like right now, a mosque sits on the temple location. It's controlled by the Muslims. And so from this prophecy, it indicates that the temple's going to be restored. Now it's interesting that if you go to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47, there's, there's the plans in place for the third temple to be built. It, there's, there's a number of different groups, but there's a temple in, institute in Jerusalem right now that they are, they are planning the third temple, the building. The, they're, they're tracking down all the priestly line. They want to get everything up and running again. And there are another number of organizations that are like, not just like planning to, but they're actually planning on getting this going. So some sort of abomination is going to happen to the Jewish people on the temple. That, that we, we know, I think it's in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that we're told that the Antichrist is going to walk into the temple, sit on the throne, and declare himself God to the world. Um, that would be pretty horrific for them. Um, finally, number four, great judgment is going to be poured out. It's going to be horrible. Um, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 24, 
Obviously, for time's sake, we, I can't go over all of Matthew 24. I will say that I did preach through Matthew, well, I preached through all of Matthew, but we covered Matthew 24 in January of 2017. So basically two years, exactly two years ago, we went through Matthew 24. It took us four weeks to get through this chapter. All of those messages are online, and if you're one who wants to go deeper into this, I would highly encourage you to, to, to listen to those sermons, to, to, to help your study of this. So instead of going over the whole Olivet Discourse, which is not, like, this is one of the most misquoted passages. It's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. But you can go listen to that message to hear me rant there. I'm not going to do it here. But let's pick up at verse 15. They had asked him. The disciples are wondering about the kingdom of God. They know the prophecies. They're anticipating the Messiah to come. And they're asking the question, and Jesus begins teaching them really about the 70th week. And so he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the very verse that we're in, the holy place let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. So you see tribulation, a little interlude here. Tribulation normally refers to the seven-year block, the 70th week. The breaking of the covenant at the three-and-a-half-year mark to the end is often referred to as the Great Tribulation, meaning that things are going to get really bad then. Verse 21, for there will be a Great Tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. You read that, I think of the Holocaust was pretty horrible. I, I've been listening to all, like, I've been, like, a bunch of books. I'm reading one, like, D-Day Through German Eyes. Like, there's been some pretty horrific things that have happened in human history. Yet Jesus says when this day comes, it's going to be so bad, it's going to be unlike anything that's ever happened in human history, it's going to be so bad. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if, I, if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Whoever, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation, so at the completion of the 70th week of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So all of this is a Jesus when he references this passage. He says this tribulational period is going to be bad. We're not going to really, when we get back to Revelation, I'm going to kind of fly over a whole bunch of chapters that will upset some. Others will thank me. Others, like, I don't know what happened. But basically, chapters 6 through 18 of Revelation, it's bad. It's like the judgments are pulled, poured out over and over and over again. And they're describing the judgments that will happen during the 70th week. Okay, now back to Daniel. Some thoughts on this section. 
You think, well, God, there's a gap that seems sort of like unusual, doesn't it? The text itself lends to the idea of a gap. The, the, the text itself sort of, there's clearly a distinction between the 69th week and the 70th week. It's not unusual in biblical prophecy um, for there to be gaps of things being fulfilled. If you'll turn with me over to Isaiah, which is before Daniel, in Isaiah 9.6, it's a verse that you all know. So in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, the great Christmas passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. So here we have the promise of the son being given to us, and we're told that the government rests on his shoulders. What that means is that he's the top dog over all government. So Jesus came, but I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> the government's not resting on his shoulders right now. And so there seems, there's a gap here. Christ the Messiah came. When he comes back the second time, that thousand-year period when he reigns and rules, as Revelation describes, it will be a theocracy. And Christ will be the top dog. And he will be reigning and ruling with an iron fist, Revelation tells us. So there's, there's a gap there. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we see this, this gap. We see the, the sufferings of Christ followed by his glorification. Now, he's at the right hand of the Father, but it's not the, the, glorifica- the ultimate glorification that's referenced later. Another reason that I believe in this gap is the events that are described in Daniel chapter 9, 27 of somebody making this decree with Israel or in Matthew 24 about the sun and the stars falling. None of this has happened historically yet. And, And so it seems to point future that this will come. I'd like to say that there are three assumptions as we sort of wrap up. Some of you will say, hey, man. Some others are like, oh, let's keep going, you know. <laughs> like, there are three assumptions in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that are interesting to me. The first is that Israel must exist as a state. Prior to May of 1948, Israel didn't exist as a state for thousands of years since 586 B.C. when they were taken into captivity. Bible-believing people prior to 1948 said the text seems to indicate that Israel has to exist as a nation. And they were mocked. In May, I think it was May 14th of 1948, some of you, our parents, our grandparents, saw a miracle happen as the state of, nation, as state of Israel was regathered as a nation. Huge. The second assumption is that the temple must exist again, which I've already referenced. There are huge organizations planning on building the temple, like waiting for the political time, waiting for something to happen. And these aren't Christian. Like I'm talking like Jews, Orthodox Jews, preparing the temple to be rebuilt so that the third temple can be reestablished. And the third thing is that the temple sacrifices have to be happening. This is like a stumbling block for those practicing Judaism today. Hey, the Old Testament, it makes it pretty clear. You guys are supposed to be making all the sacrifices. Where are the sacrifices? And there's not, there's, I think there's one group, an Orthodox group, I think in New York City, and I think that they like covertly are doing sacrifices, like, but that's, you know, I saw that on like somewhere, I don't know. But it's like where, like, for a Jew, for there not to be sacrifices, this is a huge, like, where's their atonement coming from? Where's, where's everything that is in the Old Testament happening? And so there's a push by the Orthodox Jews in particular that they want to get this, this whole temple up and running again. And biblically, it seems that it will happen again. So what do we do with this from an application standpoint? 
I keep hearing Alistair Begg's words as he began to preach on this section that I found in a commentary. I read it two weeks ago, and I want to read it again. And what follows or what has been talked about already in my case. I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold or have unfolded for you may annoy some, disappoint others, and confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. <laughs> this, this, is, this is heavy lifting stuff. One of the main things that I think that we get from this is the accuracy of past prophecy concerning who Jesus was or is. Like you can't just, you can't recreate or you can't fake what Jesus did. The, the, the level of prophecy that he fulfilled to, to the T is overwhelming evidence that he was the Messiah. And when we read verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end to sin, to, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Like, this gives me a ton of hope. Like, I'm so thankful that the scripture makes it clear that when Jesus died on the cross, it was sufficient for my sin. It's hard for me to imagine that the work of the cross one day will cause all sin to cease. How amazing would it be to live where there was no sin? I don't think we can even fathom it. To to live where the consequence of sin no longer brings about death. For any of us that have ever loved a, lost a loved one, and I want to you know, specifically pray for the Holmes family. I know they're out here. I just don't see them. They're somewhere out here. They're right there is Penny. You know, Penny lost her second son this week. It, it doesn't compute with us. And the Bible makes this, this promise that a day will come when it's done. We'll have everlasting life with everlasting righteousness that God's not finished, and so there's hope for us looking forward. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where the whole rapture is spoken of, it's not given for us to argue about, to theologically swing our swords and to get in big arguments over, which is how it's used most. We're told there that the reason that it was given to us was to comfort us, to give us hope so that we don't have to grieve like those without hope grieve. I'd also say that this section, if you're not a believer, that it's God's grace to you that he scares you. It's a beautiful thing to be scared. Pain, pain can be a beautiful thing. You, you put your hand on the oven or the stove, it's a blessing that you feel the pain to pull away from it. We're told in 2 Peter 3, verse. let's just go there. I'm going to end with this and we'll end with this prayer. So 2 Peter, it's just before Revelation. So 2 Peter, chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 3. I'm just going to read this, and then I'll probably say a word or two, and we'll pray. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come, in their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at the time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact 
escape your notice. He's saying, as you read this, as you read about global warming through a whole new lens, (laughs) and you get horrified, and you start getting fearful, and you don't know what to do with it, and it, it, it terrifies you, what the Apostle Peter says is, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God is outside of time. Time doesn't exist for God. Time is something he gave us within his creation. But he says, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you. I'm so thankful that God is patient with us. Because if any of us were in God's shoes, our patience would wear out and we would have destroyed everybody around us a thousand times before nine o'clock this morning, you know, like. But God in his mercy and his gentleness and his loving kindness, he is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things, how far am I supposed to go? Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just also as our beloved brother Paul According to the wisdom given you, one of the most funny verses in the whole Bible, just to let you know, in all his letters speaking in them of these things which are some things that are hard to understand. So the Apostle Peter says, the things that Paul writes are really hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also to the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do... Thank you for your word. We thank you for the great prophecies that are embedded within your holy word. Lord, we acknowledge that some of them are really difficult to understand and to piece together. And Father, I pray that um, your grace would be uh, just a bounce to some of those that might have been a little bit blown away by the content of today. Father, we pray that as we walk away from this passage, that you would help those of us that know you, that we would be um, affirmed by the prophecy that was given about Christ to know that the things that were recorded here, many of them have been fulfilled, which gives us hope looking forward to the ones that are yet to come. And so, Father, we pray that these sections of Scripture uh, wouldn't be used to terrify us, that they would be used to encourage us in Christ, to help us to press on, uh, to live our lives in a way that's glorifying to you. Father, we pray for those that don't know you as Savior, um, that these sections would kind of shake them a little bit. I think it's your grace that scares us to help us to, to sort of open up and see the big picture, that our life is fleeting and passing, and we will give an account before you but none of us will face you without the offer that Christ extends to each one of us to to receive, to believe in him, to receive eternal life and security in him. And Father, we pray, as the author of Hebrews wrote, today, if you don't know Christ and you hear his voice, 
Don't harden your hearts. Father, we are grateful for your mercy and grace to us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.